One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What did the Tudors eat? Or, more specifically, what did the Elizabethans eat? Today we're going to be thinking about the dining habits of the gentry, getting into that nitty-gritty that gives us a real insight into people's everyday experiences of life, what they ate, what they ate off, and when they ate it. We'll learn of the preponderance of beef, some strange meal combinations, salty fish and parsnips, anyone, and changing habits over the seasons and fashions of the century. My guest to guide us through this culinary fair is Dr. Mark Dawson. Dr. Dawson is a historian specialising in the history of food and drink, particularly of the Tudor period. His book, Plenty and Grace, Food and Drink in a 16th Century Household from 2009, was based on his PhD research into the remarkable household accounts of the Willoughby family. He's subsequently been looking into more ordinary households through probate inventories and exploring the history of oat cakes sheep's milk cheese and Henderson's relish. Plenty and grace be in this place, while every man is pleased in his degree. Mark, it is an absolute pleasure to see you and welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. I want to tell you that this book of yours, Plenty and Grace, has been so important to me over the years. I did some historical consultancy recently and then they were asking questions about, you know, what was on the table or whatever. And your book is the go-to book about the everyday experience of English people when it came to eating and what they did and what they had. So I can't wait to talk to you about it. Thank you. (laughs) So let's first of all talk about sources, because I think it's so useful to think about how we know what we know. I know that we have all sorts of cookery books and advice manuals from the 16th century, but of course those are telling us what people were told to do, not what they did. And so you found this kind of different body of sources that could get much more at what people actually did or what they actually ate. So could you introduce those sources? Yeah, this came out of my PhD research at Nottingham University. And the particular archiving question is kept at the Nottingham University Manuscripts Department, It's a collection of household accounts from a family called the Willoughby's. It's unusual in the for the amount of information that's in there and the period that it covers, which is quite extensive from the 1520s right the way through to the early 1600s. There are other household accounts that survive for other families, but they're generally for just one or two years. And you sometimes find they haven't got all the information there, whereas the archive for the Willoughby's is really quite extensive and almost unique, really, I think, in that respect, in terms of the amount of chronological scope it's got and the depth. And the Willoughby's themselves were a gentry family, so they weren't titled, they weren't nobility, but they were very wealthy. Their estates were dotted around the Midlands, one at Middleton in Warwickshire and one at Woolerton, which is now in Nottingham, but just outside Nottingham in those days. 
They also got a lot of their money from coal mining as well in and around Nottingham. One of the things they do in the 16th century is they get the house at Woolton completely rebuilt and this really grand prodigy house is built by Robert Smithson in the 1580s for Francis Willoughby. That's the Willoughbys and that's their archive. And then the reason the archive survives is unusual. Those sorts of household accounts don't always survive. And they seem to have survived in the case of the Willoughbys because in the 17th century, when these records weren't particularly old, they came into the hands of another Francis Willoughby. And he was looking, we believe, at writing the history of his family, but he died when he was only in his 30s and he didn't get around to it. But his daughter, Cassandra, she did write up the history of the family. And so it's through her, really, I think, that the records managed to survive down to the present day because the value that she invests in them, they didn't get thrown away to time when they could have done, they get preserved. That's so interesting. Of course, that makes sense that you have to have somebody a short period of time after these things have been produced who doesn't look at them and say, oh, well, that's rubbish, but invest value in them. Yeah, because their value as financial documents has gone once they've been audited and maybe several years after the event, they aren't really worth anything anymore, unlike title deeds and things. So that's why they don't tend to survive in other collections. But Cassandra looked at the household accounts in the late 17th, early 18th century as a means for writing the history of the family. She was running her brother's household at the time, so she probably saw something of the household management that she was doing in these records. Let's talk about the Willoughby household then, because if these household accounts are going to give us a sense of what they ate, we kind of need to know how many people they were feeding and how big the kitchen staff was and things like that. What can you learn about that? So there seem to have been around about 40 to 50 people in the Willoughby household as a whole. The vast majority of them servants of one degree or another, from gentry servants right down through the kitchen boys. In terms of the actual kitchen staff, probably about four or five people under the cook. People who are employed temporarily in the kitchen to scourers to clean up. They don't appear on the general sort of staff role, so we can imagine they have people coming in for a few hours a day to do the cleaning up. There are also some ancillary roles associated with the kitchen. So you've got things like the caterer, or the acaterer as they called him, who was the person who went out and got the fresh food just about every day as well. A slaughterman who would slaughter the bigger animals that needed dispatching, pigs, sheep, cattle. And a brewer as well. They had a brewer who was brewing household drink. I love the fact that there are some things that are completely different and some things totally the same. A temporary job as washing up, you know, yeah. very familiar. Okay, so here's the big question. Their meals, what did they call them? What time did they have them? <laughs> so according to dietary theorists in the Tudor period, there were two main meals that you should have, which were dinner, which you take around between 11 and 12. And that's the main meal. And then there's supper, which you take later on five, six o'clock tea time. And that's the secondary meal. Breakfast is something that's really only recommended for manual workers. But the gentry, and we know this from the Willoughby records, when they were going on journeys or they were going hunting, then they would have breakfast then, which might only just be something like a draught of ale or beer and some bread and cheese or something. So they were all practising intermittent fasting, as we're now told we should. Where were they eating their food? The main meals will be taken what was known as the Great Hall of the, the main houses that they had at Middleton and at Woolerton. The Willoughbys themselves, by at least the mid-16th century, were starting to eat in a dining parlour, so having their meals aside from the bulk of their servants, which is fairly common for people of their class. 
most people, in fact, would eat in the main hall of their own house. So that's on a much grander scale. That's what the Willoughby servants are effectively doing. They're sitting down and eating in the main room of the house, the main hall. The difference is for somebody of the Willoughby's status, they're starting to dine apart from their servants, whereas a yeoman farmer will probably sit round with his sort of half dozen, seven, eight, nine servants and family all in the one room in the main hall of the house. And the wonderful thing about household accounts, it seems to me, is it allows us to get at these wonderful nerdish details. Like, I want you to tell me, please, about plates and cutlery. What were they eating of? What were they eating with? The Willoughby's had plate, as we might know it, a silver and gilt plate. And they had a few pieces of this, which was very high status, very expensive. There were ceremonial things that they would have had on a cupboard in the back of the, probably in the dining parlour, to be honest. But in general terms, or on most occasions, they would have eaten off pewter. And in fact, most of their servants had off pewter as well. And they've got vast amounts of pewter in the household that people eat off of. And again, this is something that a lot of people outside of a big household like the Willoughby's would also have eaten off pewter as well. It was something that a chap called William Harrison, who wrote a description of England, he talks about good farmers having a garnish of pewter, 12 place settings of it. So pewter is something that probably goes right the way down through Tudor society. In terms of other things they might have let off, though, earlier on in the 1520s, there's mention of bread trenches, which is something that, again, classically you've got in your head about how people eat in the Tudor period. But they're not really mentioned much after the 1520s. There are references to wooden plates, wooden trenches, and these are possibly two sorts of wooden dishes that have been in the household. The cheaper sort that might be used by workers out in the fields, they probably wouldn't let them out there with pewter, but they might be out there eating off of wooden trenches. But there are also a different sort of wooden trench, which again is for dining outside, where you get these what they call case or posy trenches, which have got little mottos written on them. And they're for the Willoughby's and their very refined guests to eat banquet courses and sweetmeats and things on. I also get out eating outside. So I think within the household, you've got pewter and then outside the household, potentially sort of these little wooden trenches, potentially. Yeah. And is a trencher just a plate or is it a large serving plate? The sort of posy trenches are small wooden discs of maybe only five, six inches, so about 125 centimetres across. The wooden trenches for eating out in the field would have been larger, hollowed out dish almost for people to use. And the bread trenches, I think, are the sort of forerunner of that. And let's talk about foods. What was the kind of broad diet? A lot of the foods, particularly the staple foods, are very familiar. And this is something that I know when people ask me, they're a bit disappointed. And I say, it sounds very similar to what we might eat today in many ways. So a large part of their diet, particularly the servant's diet, is bread. Estimates are around about £2 a kilogram per person per day. Like a supermarket loaf, basically. That's a huge amount of bread for one person. It's a huge amount of bread and a huge amount of carbs. The sort of bread that people are eating depends on who you are. So you've got the top quality stuff, which is the manchet. So you've got fine wheat manchet would be eaten by the Willoughby's themselves but by the very rich and then the next stage down is cheap bread which is made from whole wheat grain and that's what their upper servants would have been eating but the majority of the household is eating what's known as household bread which in the midland at least is made from a mixture of rye and wheat called maslin and that's the bread that most people eat within the willoughby household and also outside of it in that local area local breads tend to be made from the local grains but the rich always have wheat so bread is a major component of the diet. And then comes meat, really, which, again, the English are tremendously proud of the fact that they eat a lot of meat, that it's such a wealthy nation that everybody eats meat in large quantities. And certainly in the Willoughby household, their servants are eating something like one to two pounds of meat a day, which is half a kilo to a kilo of meat, which is a really substantial amount. But 
isn't that unusual because you can compare that with diets for Tudor sailors and soldiers. It's a similar sort of quantity that's being allocated. And what meats were preferred? What were their options? And what would they think was appropriate to, say, someone of high status or someone of low status? The main meats in the household are sort of general status one would be beef. Beef's around 40% of the meat that's eaten in the household. It's generally boiled as well. The second one is mutton, which is around sort of 25%. Those two could swap round in certain areas. Beef generally throughout England, Thomas Coggan in the 1580s, beef of all flesh is most usual amongst Englishmen. And that's certainly the case in the Willoughby household. But you do find that in other areas, the household accounts, for example, for Haddon Hall in the 17th century, in Derbyshire, their mutton is more common, but that's unusual. So yeah, so those are the main meats. You've then got pork and veal, which are more seasonal, but again, fairly commonly throughout the household. In terms of higher status stuff, then you've got the more unusual things. Lamb, pigeons, rabbits, and various sorts of wildfowl, larks, blackbirds, even sparrows. Anything that's not got a lot of meat on it that's probably going to take a lot of effort to get off. That's getting up towards a high status. Poultry was quite high status meat as well. And that sort of meat, that sort of variety is all really for the top table for the Willoughby's themselves. What about deer? Was it usual for aristocrats and gentry to eat venison? It's a status symbol because it's not something that can be traded. So the only way you can get venison is if you've got your own deer park or somebody who has, and they're going to give you some as a gift. Mostly is in the aristocracy and the gentry, they've got access to it. But it's far from being an everyday food in the Willoughby house. The accounts right at the end of the 16th century, 1598 to 1599, they're really detailed ones. Within there, they show how many carcasses of deer have been taken from the estates, and it was nine and a half in a year, which is a reasonable amount of venison, to be honest. But this is a big household, and so it's only a few hundred pounds of meat compared to overall about 10, 15,000 pounds of meat they consume. So it's a fairly small quantity. So something that's familiar to the aristocracy and the gentry, but not necessarily something they're having every day by any means. And have you come across any kind of surprising dishes? There are lots and lots of unusual things. So they eat sparrows, for example, which I think is bizarre, to be honest, but they ate all sorts of different birds. But the things I found in the accounts that really stood out to me, one was how they would buy oat cakes, which is somebody who's from Derbyshire was stood out. At least in the 16th century and the 17th century, oatcakes were about the only bread in large parts of the Peak District. But it's not something you'd expect a gentry family in Nottinghamshire to be buying. But they bought them during Lent. And so they were buying them as a penance food, I think. So I think that's unusual. And that was very much a surprise. And another nice little neat surprise that comes out of the accounts is that you don't often get an idea of how foods are being combined. Lots of things being bought, but quite often you don't really know how they were put together. But there is one occasion where almost a complete list of ingredients for bream pies is itemised. A guy called William Darby. He's going to make these bream pies for the judges at Nottingham. And it's got the list of the bream there. And you've also got raisins, currants and prunes, which are going to be put in these pies as well. And that's nice because it gives you that idea of what's going in this pie. It's very Elizabethan use of dried fruits in that sort of way. But you get recipes similar to that in Gervais Markham in The English Housewife from the end of the 16th century as well. I guess it makes you think of mincemeat. Yeah, in this case, minced fish going in there together with all these dried fruits. Yeah. So that was a nice thing to find that. Did you know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused? Or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, 
ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons or sex ed. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets now, wherever you get your podcasts. This is After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. I suppose this is an age of trade, and by the end of the century, certainly the English are going to America and bringing things back. So do we see exotic imports being introduced at this time? So, yes, we have got the products of this Colombian exchange starting to filter through into diet in England. The one thing that gains favour quite early on are turkeys, because they're known as being eaten at the court of Henry VIII in the early 16th century. And they seem to have taken a little bit longer to get up to the Midlands, but the Willoughby household accounts record them in the 1570s. Only small numbers. So that's one product there that's made all the way across the Atlantic. And now they start to be bred in Nottinghamshire in the 1570s. In fact, there is a probate inventory for a minor esquire from Misterton, way up in the very north of Nottinghamshire. A chap called John Pooge, who died in 1574. And he's got turkeys in his inventory. And that was quite nice as well. It's sort of showing that they're not just with the very wealthy gentry family, but also with a sort of parish notable up in the wilds of North Nottinghamshire. He's got turkeys now and how they spread in the space of a generation or so, having been introduced and eaten at the court of Henry VIII, within a generation or so that there's throughout the country. Another one, though, that's not probably know, exotic. I like to take on this. It would have been exotic at the time. It's carp. And this is not coming from the transatlantic, but coming from Eastern Europe and Central Europe. But again, this is something in the 16th century that comes into the diet of the gentry, at least anyway. They start to stock carp in their fish ponds. Well, talking of fish, and given that you've mentioned oat cakes, which I suppose are both potentially, we've said, Lenten things, from your book, it seems that the church here is crucially important to the eating habits of the Willoughby's. How else did their choice of food reflect that seasonality? The seasonal impact is quite interesting because a lot of foods are only available at certain seasons of the year. You can see that from the accounts. So, for example, lamb and pigeons, for example, are only available in spring and summer. The pigeons, they tend to take the young ones out of the dovecuts and they take them in two batches, if you like. One in April and one in sort of August time. The various wildfowl, they tend to, again, come in fairly limited periods through the autumn and the winter. But these are all tidbits, if you like, for the top table. They're not the main foods. Pork is quite seasonal, mainly in autumn and winter, and that's a much more common meat. So that's a bigger seasonal impact, if you like. And veal, which tends to take its place in spring and summer. Christmas has a big impact on the household. Massive sort of two weeks of celebrations and large quantities of food consumed then, but also some special things that only really get eaten at Christmas. You've got geese. Most of the geese that are consumed in the household are consumed around about Christmas time. And also brought, which is a Elizabethan speciality of Christmas, which is a sort of pickled 
pork dish, which William Harrison talks about and says that foreigners are very confused by. They think it's some sort of fish. It's a really strongly flavoured, but that's a big winter Christmas seasonal dish. And yeah, fasting had a massive impact on the diet. And Lent is a big seasonal manifestation of that. Meat is off the menu for 40 odd days and people are forced to eat fish. But you get that every week, actually. There's fasts every Friday and every Saturday. And you've got various saints days through the year. And the eaves of those saints days are also held as fasts. So that's not really seasonal. That sort of regularity is occurring throughout the year. And the sorts of things that people eat in the household on those days, preserved fish, there's no particular seasonality to that. Salt fish all the way through the year. And their bread and their beer would be the same as well, all the way through the year. And the main meats that the household itself is eating, which is beef and mutton, again, they're eaten throughout the year. For a lot of people in the household, a lot of what they're eating is actually the same all the way through the year. And the seasonality probably depends on who you are. So if you're at the top table, then you are seeing a lot of seasonal changes, whereas the bulk of the household, maybe not so much. I suppose they would see more seasonal changes if their diet rested on vegetables. So Mm. I really want to ask this question because I don't know whether this is true or whether this is a kind of myth about the period. You quote Sir Thomas Eliot and this wonderful line about all fruits are generally noiful to man and do engender ill humours. What do we know about the Willoughbys and people more generally and their consumption of fruit and vegetables? Did they do so? Yes, they did. The quote from Eliot really is typifying that usual thought that they didn't eat a lot of fruit and veg, but they certainly do seem to have. It's hard to quantify it, really. There are lots of indications that people did value fruit and veg. Quoting William Harrison once more, he talks about how the use of fruit and veg has very much resumed in his own time in the later 16th century, and then talks about all these different sorts of fruit and veg that people are eating now, melons, pumpkins, cucumbers, radishes, skirrets, parsnips, carrots. And we know that the Willoughbys grew a lot of these things in their gardens. One of the great things about their household accounts is that we have actually got information about their gardens too. So we know what seeds they were buying. We know they bought strawberry roots, so they were growing strawberries. But again, we know they bought them regularly. The caterer was often buying strawberries and peas and things. So there are some value set by these things. And outside of the Willoughby household too, I think we can say that there was a value placed on fruit and vegetables. Thomas Coggan in the 1580s talks about parsnips being food for the common people on fast days. And the Willoughby's bought large quantities of parsnips in. And again, you can imagine they're going down to their servants. Whereas other sorts of varieties of vegetables may have been more unusual. They bought cabbages, for example, in the 1590s, and they itemised these cabbages as they were presumably going up to the top table. So we might think of cabbages as being quite poor quality food, whatever, but the close-headed varieties were still reasonably new and unusual. So unusual varieties they valued. And they got things like artichokes and cucumbers and melons as gifts from gentry neighbours. So yeah, I think there was a value definitely placed on fruit and vegetables. I wonder if what you said about Harrison and the sense that fruit and vegetables were coming back into fashion, as it were, were on vogue later in the 16th century implies that they're not so fashionable early in the 16th century. Although also in privy purse expenses, for example, that I've looked at for the 1530s, we've got gifts of food and they tend to be very yummy things <laughs> that are being presented, sometimes cheese and stuff. But I do remember cherries coming up. So perhaps there is a sense that there's some of it being eaten earlier, but that they have come back into favour? Or am I running ahead of the evidence here? I've not really got enough evidence to say on that, but from the Willoughby accounts, I've certainly got that impression because there are more gifts of different sorts of vegetables 
and fruit in the later 16th century. There's certainly more variety that get mentioned. So whether that's just new varieties coming along that are tempting the palate, that's still then stimulating a general interest in fruit and vegetables in the later 16th century, it's quite possible. And certainly the things like artichokes and cucumbers, and they get mentioned in the later 16th century as gifts to the Willoughbys. Would a poor person have had a diet that was richer in vegetables? I mean, arguably, therefore, a healthier diet than a rich person at this time. The main issue for the poor is getting enough to eat. And certainly vegetables are a cheap food, or a lot of vegetables are cheap in that respect. Thomas Cogan talks about parsnips being common food. They're a cheap source of calories. But the main thing for the poor really is getting enough food to keep up the level of work that they need to do. And they need to expend a lot of calories. And so that the main things in their diet are similar to the Willoughby servants, these large amounts of bread and surprisingly large quantities of meat as well, which we've got the example of Robert Loder's farm accounts from the early 17th century, and he provides for his labourers similar amounts of meat to the Willoughby's servants were getting in terms of one to two pounds of meat, on meat days, that is, I should say. So in terms of whether their diet was any healthier, it's difficult really to say. I think they were eating lots of red meat, lots of dairy, and these are things that perhaps we wouldn't now associate with particularly healthy diet. But the gentry would have had much more wide variety of things to consume, whereas the diet of the poor was probably more based around staples. And as I said, I think the main issue they've got is getting enough to eat to sustain the heavy work that they need to do. So that's the sort of balance that the poor are trying to do. In terms of what people thought of health at the time, I think the dietary theorists thought that the sorts of foods that the poor ate, in terms of coarse bread made from mixed grains, which again, now we might think, oh, that's fantastic. The mixed grain bread, that's what you want instead of the white bread. They saw that as being suitable for their coarse stomachs of these rustic types, whereas if they had the light bread, it probably would just have burned up within them. Well, that's a lovely example of how what is considered healthy at any particular time varies quite dramatically. Sugar, salt and spices make our food taste better. To what extent would these have featured in the diet of people in the 16th century? Salt was an essential because it was required for food preservation. There's no refrigeration, there's no freezing. So preserved fish, bacon, they all require large amounts of salt. Even short-term preservation of fresh meat would be done within brine. The other thing, I suppose for us, would be the lack of sugar. The Willoughbys were buying sugar for around 20 pence per pound in the 1590s, which is something like two days wages for the average working person. So it's hideously expensive and there are estimates as how much sugar was imported into the country because it was all imported at the end of the 16th century it's around one pound per person per year so it's not a huge amount of sugar actually in the country and the rich consume the vast majority of that the willoughbys were buying around about 100 pounds of sugar per year most of which would have been consumed by the family themselves this wasn't going out to the servants and it gets used in banqueting food so it's a flavor that the rich very much get to have and sugar is seen as a spice because it is so expensive. And the other spices themselves are quite expensive. Pepper's the most common one, and together with ginger is about the least expensive. From the information I got from the Willoughby household, they're buying it for three or four pence an ounce. It's quite expensive, but pepper and ginger are the cheaper ones. The other spices they buy, cinnamon and nutmeg, are around twice as expensive. Nutmeg is something that's coming into vogue in the late 16th century amongst the wealthy. But there's also some spices which are early 16th century which are on their way out you don't see them mentioned later on in the accounts things like long pepper grains of paradise and surprisingly also saffron as well these are things that are almost like medieval flavorings 
that are still there in the household accounts in the early 16th century, but you don't find them later on. But you've got cheaper flavourings as well in the Tudor period. Mustard, which is a much cheaper spice that everybody can afford, and that's quite often used with salty fish. Because on fast days, that's what just about everybody ends up eating, salt fish or salt herring. So the mustard basically helps it go down and it gives you something other than salty fish to taste on fast days, salty fish and parsnips. The other flavouring as well, which is quite cheap, but is almost universal again within Tudor England, is verjuice, which gets made from crab apples. That gives you a kind of a sour, sharp condiment that you can put into your food. And again, quite cheap, something that everybody can use. The Willoughby's use it as well. Well, that's a wonderful overview. And you mentioned changing habits in terms of spices, and we've talked a bit about sugar and about turkeys. Are there any other things that we should know about changing fashions of consumption in this period? So again, for the top end, we know the Willoughby's started in the late 16th century to buy things like olives and capers, which are tremendous kind of middle-class deli things now, but they were buying them from grocers in the late 16th century, and that's a new thing. Gervais Markham, the English housewife, talks about how you can make substitute capers from broom buds. So if you can't afford to buy real capers, you can make them from broom buds. And Willoughby's would go out and collect broom buds as well. So even though they're quite well off, they maybe sometimes can't get hold of capers and then make their own. Veal is becoming more popular in the late 16th century. So there's a more general meat that seems to be more popular. And that's a change. There's some wider changes as well happening in 16th century society in England, basically down to immigration coming from modern day Holland and Belgium. The various religious turmoil of the Reformation led to a large number of immigrants. They come over in the 16th century and bring their food habits and tastes with them. And these start to have an impact on Tudor society. One of them is the increased use of butter. And that's something that starts to be talked about within Tudor society. And also the commercial growing of vegetables, which again, we talked about perhaps is increasing vegetables in the 16th century, late 16th century. And some of that is kicked on by this wave of immigration from the low countries where the commercial production of vegetables has got a longer history. And they almost kickstart market gardening in England in the late 16th century. There's a wonderful book by Malcolm Thicke called The Neat House Gardens, which talks about the growth of market gardening around London in the late 16th century. But when you start to look into the sources and in depth have done with the Willoughby's, you can see it happening elsewhere. Like I'm sure there's something happening around Nottingham as well. They've got a gardener, the Willoughby's employ, who rents some land from them in Nottingham. And there are various tithe cases in Nottingham, various fruit and vegetables that clergy want to tithe on, for example, parsnips. And it just gives you an impression that maybe there is some sort of market gardening and increase in the production of vegetables happening in the late 16th century. So I have one last question for you, because we haven't talked at all about drinking and it's often said that water was too dangerous to drink at this time, so people drank beer instead. And I'd like to know if you think that's the truth, and what's the difference between beer and ale at this time, and basically were there any other options when it came to drinking apart from beer? Certainly the dietary theorists were broadly in agreement that water was dangerous. In terms of humoral theory, it was dangerous because it was cold and moist and it would upset your natural disposition, which was hot and dry. And there seems to be not a lot of evidence because it's difficult to say absence of evidence, but it does appear that people in general did drink beer and ale and water was seen as something that you drank out of desperation, really. You would do something with it. You would brew it before you drank it. In terms of other things that people could drink, there were fruit juices such as cider and perry that were known, but it's a regional thing, regional specialities in specific areas. 
Wine is really expensive by volume around about eight to ten times as expensive as beer or ale. It was all imported as well by this date. I think we had been growing vines in this country in the early medieval period but not by the 16th century it's all imported and incredibly expensive people do drink whey which is a byproduct from cheese making but by and large it is beer and ale that people consume and and it's not just a drink it's also it's like a major source of calories as well quite likely to have got as many calories out of the beer and the ale as you do from eating the vast amount of bread it's estimated again sort of something like four to eight pints per person per day for adult man would drink and probably most women as well. It's not hugely strong, but probably enough to take the edge off sleeping on a straw mattress or something. But it is effectively the only option, by and large. And as I say, it is two different drinks, beer and ale. Ale's the original one, but both made from malted barley in general. You do get some oat malt being used in some areas. Derbyshire, they use a bit of oat malt because there's a lot of oats being grown. But in general, it's malted barley. An ale is unhopped, and it tends to be made in small quantities domestically. And... It's the original drink. Andrew Boer says it's a natural drink for an Englishman. But through the 16th century, what you find is that beer becomes more common as the main drink. Beer's hopped, and hops means it's preserved, which means you can brew it in bigger quantities, which means commercial production of beer is more possible. It's introduced from the continent, from the place where a lot of these Flemish immigrants are coming from. It's been around in England since the 15th century, but it's popularised in the 16th century. As again, as a result... Partly, I think, of this wave of immigration. Most of the beer brewers around in the 16th century are Flemish immigrants. So there's a big influence there. And it takes off and beer becomes very popular, still is. So Thomas Coggan, who writes a couple of generations after Andrew Board, writing at the end of the 16th century, he says it's the main drink of the country now, everywhere apart from in the far north. So if anything is the big change in diet, and in fact, the big change in general in 16th century England is this triumph of beer. Well, thank you so much. It's been a really wonderful overview of that everyday stuff, everybody's experience. Everybody eats, everybody ate, and it gives us such an insight into how life was for people. So I'm very grateful to you for joining us, Dr. Dawson, to talk about your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It seems about time, frankly, that you got a chance to speak to us too. So we have belatedly launched a Twitter account, which is at Not Just Tudors. Please write to me on there and say what you would like to hear podcasts about. Or if Twitter is not your thing, we also have an email address, which is Not Just the Tudors at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.